0: Hello, this is Dr. Yola Kerpenstein and this is The Purple Podcast and this is number 95. Really excited. Happy New Year, everybody. This is going to be a grand year. I know 2020 was a little difficult, but 2021 will be awesome. And we have a great podcast for you because we are going to repeat the most downloaded podcasts of all times. And this is a double one. So there's two podcasts in one and this podcast was aired really early in our podcast adventure. It's a podcast of Dr. Sarah Boston talking about a very difficult disease in cats which is called injection site sarcoma. So two podcasts in one. Enjoy. Happy New Year.
1: Hi everyone. This is Dr. Susan Little. Wishing all of you the best holiday possible in this pandemic year. I know many veterinary team members are working during the holiday. Thank you so much. Yola and I are replaying some of our most popular episodes for you. We hope you enjoy them and we look forward to sharing more great feline medicine conversations with you in 2021.
0: Sorry for saying Sorry Media presents the Purr Podcast. The best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, and I'm together with... Dr. Susan Liu. Hi, Susan. How are you doing?
1: I'm good, Yola. How are you?
0: Where are you in this world?
1: I am actually in Ottawa. I'm actually home, but just for one night because it, this is good timing because I have to leave tomorrow. So.
0: Wow, that doesn't happen very often yeah. that, that we're both at home because I'm in beautiful Kansas in Lawrence. Kansas, yeah. And I'm leaving tomorrow too, but I'm not going as far. Oh. So, yeah. But I'm uh, mm-hmm. very excited. This is podcast number four, the PER podcast number four. And we have a very special guest. And as a matter of fact, I'm so excited because this is the first podcast that we invited guest. And that person is...
1: Yay! So, uh,
0: yeah, so we have Dr. Sarah Boston on the phone. Hello, Sarah.
2: Hello, thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, it's so fantastic that, that you're on with us, and we have a special topic because I think we're going to talk about something that happens in cats, not that often, but if it happens, it is pretty bad. And uh, so, Sarah, let's start with you a little bit. Can you give a little bit of background, who you are, what you do, and, and what your clock speaks to
2: sure. um, So, my name is Sarah Boston, and I'm a veterinary surgical oncologist and i currently practice just outside of toronto um with VCA canada um at a practice called 404 veterinary emergency and referral and um i do only cancer surgery for dogs and cats
0: and sarah is an amazing surgeon so i know her for quite a long time already um we're both part of the VSSO, the veterinary society of surgical quality and we might be able to talk about that a little bit too uh, uh during the podcast but uh So uh, like-minded people, and uh, so that means that uh, Susan, this podcast will be Mm -hmm. about surgery.
1: Well, I know, but you know, I'm okay with that because we have picked a topic where really we only have two big things to talk about. One is how you how you prevent this, and the other is treatment, and treatment is surgery, right? So, so I'm I'm okay with that. And I'm really happy that Sarah um, is uh, is with us for this topic um, today because it is an important topic. It's not the most common disease that we in cats, but it's pretty important.
0: It is. It is. And Sarah wrote a blog about it, and that's how it all started, I think, yeah, the idea to invite her for this podcast. And uh, we are going to call this podcast, First About Fizz. And what is this, Sarah?
2: So feline injection site sarcoma, which has also been called vaccine-associated sarcoma, Um, and essentially it is a very aggressive cancer, um, very locally aggressive. It can also metastasize, um, and it is caused by uh, inflammation. And so it happens most commonly with vaccines. Um, It has been reported with other types of injections, but most commonly with vaccines, and a little more commonly with the vaccines that cause inflammation as part of eliciting the immune response. Um So those are called adjuvanted vaccines. Um, it's a fairly controversial topic, but I think because it's such an awful disease. But uh, I named my blog, We Need to Talk About Feline Injection Site Sarcomas. And I'm really excited to be here talking about this with you both because we do need to talk about it. And we need to have our feline practitioners and our cancer surgeons and our general practitioners and industry working together. And I feel like we're not talking and we're not doing that. So I'm hoping we can start a conversation.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting that you say that, Sarah, because this really first hit the radar back in the mid, like early to mid-1990s, and here we are, what, you know, 25 years later, 30 years later, and we still need to talk about it. Yeah, that's amazing to me as
2: well, because I graduated in 1996, and I did spend three years in general practice, and... I was vaccinating low on a limb and over a limb, and um, a lot of my clients thought it was nuts because that, that's something they hadn't seen before at that time because it was, you know, 1996, 1997. Um, but we still see injection site sarcomas uh, between the shoulder blades, which is a, you know, kind of old-school place to vaccinate. Um, we've also seen a shift in the location of the injection site sarcomas. So the vaccine task force has recommended vaccinating over a limb I think that message has gotten through. I think what hasn't necessarily gotten through and I think is so important is to vaccinate low on the limb, so below the elbow, below the stifle. Um, the problem is we know that the recommendation is surgery and the recommendation is to use five-centimeter margins, and if you think about that on a cat, it's, it's huge. And really, the mm. only way to achieve that with minimal morbidity to the cat and I don't know I say that in quotation marks because it still means a big surgery for them but is low on a limb so we could achieve a limb amputation and potentially cure that patient. Um when it's when it's up higher on the limb over a shoulder over a hip we end up doing hemipelvectomies body wall resections thoracic wall resections I mean huge surgeries in these cats and even with those big surgeries we we don't always achieve a cure. Um and I you know, I, I see these a lot. So I know that people say, well, they're not common. And I know they're not common. Just statistically, they are, they occur in one in a thousand to one in 10,000 cats. But if you only practice cancer surgery, you end up seeing them pretty frequently. And, and it's a heartbreaking disease. So I'm hoping we can push for change, you know, and, and vaccine sites are really important. Um, how often people are vaccinating is important and the type of vaccine. Um, I, you know, Susan, you're the best person to talk about that, not me, but for me it's all about sight and, um, you know, people following vaccine recommendations.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah
2: I, I, I agree. agree.
0: Yeah, so because normally people tend to vaccinate in between the shoulder blades and, and, uh, I've always thought about why that is. Probably it's the easiest spot, there is a little loose skin there and you're kind of away from the head, so you're, you're not really uh, I mean, you're probably a little bit safer there, but, uh, and then this, these guidelines came out and then they said periphery. The and at first they were talking about the tail. And Susan, what do you think about tail vaccination?
1: Well, that, that seemed to have sort of a little brief flurry of interest there for a while. There was one paper, very small paper, <clears throat> small number of cats, um, uh, looking at, um, injecting in the tail, you know, with a view again, um to the fact that it, it would be, uh, possibly, uh, a site that's, that's, uh, maybe most amenable to surgery, you know, should you need to deal with, uh, a sarcoma that arises in that place. But it, you know, there are problems and, and so we, we looked at that. We played around with that a little bit in my practice and the problem of vaccinating entails is kind of twofold. Like one is that there's not a lot of sub-Q space and, and these vaccines are meant to go sub, sub-Q. Uh and often the skin on the tail, especially towards the base of the tail, is quite thick. So it could be challenging actually to get the vaccine placed in, in you know in, in the right location. Um and some cats are really quite touchy about their tails too. So I it, it I don't think this is really taken off as a popular vaccination site and, and I think I and I can understand why.
0: Yeah, so from from a surgical standpoint it probably is the the easiest place to take off if a two mark exists but i completely agree with you it is it's not very practical mm. and most of the time when you talk with cat sets uh they 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 laugh at you if you even bring it up uh, like, okay this is this is a very academic decision that they made and uh and and it's not working in practice so uh, but but sarah you were talking a little bit about uh distal on the limb. um is Is that an easier place to vaccinate them?
2: So I mean I can talk about my own experience and and I have not been in general practice for a long time, um but I did do three years of practice and um you know I think it just gets it comes down to what you're used to and what you get comfortable with. I found um if I wrapped the patient or used the i hate the term cat bag, but I guess it's the best term and I could just pull a leg out and they were pretty calm for that you know I think something that actually comes hand in hand with vaccine sites and thinking about that is gentle handling of feline patients. So, you know, a lot of people yeah. kind of grab them by the scruff and give them their vaccine. And it's, a, it's, it's, they say, well, I can't do anything else with them because they're just terrible in the clinic. But, um, you know, it's all about how you handle them. I call it speaking cat. It's, it's being calm. I think if you're calm with them and you use gentle handling techniques, you, you really can vaccinate them in these sites. And it doesn't have to be such a, such a big deal. And again, I'm not, I'm not a feline only practitioner, but I do handle cats a lot in my practice. And, you know, there is a difference, you know, people who are more patient with them, um, and sort of like work, work with them rather than working against them. And I think some of the intrascapular vaccination and anything we do with these cats, like it comes from not working with the cat and just grabbing them and scrapping them and, you know, pinning them to the table. And I really think that's part of what also we need to move away from that. And I think if you, if you can kind of change your mindset, for how you handle a feline patient, you, you really can handle them that way and vaccinate them lower on a limb. Um, I do understand the issues with the tail, and, you know, the other concern I have about the tail vaccine is that people will vaccinate too high up because that's not going to be helpful. So that's the problem with the limb vaccinations that I'm seeing, the sites that I'm seeing with the cats with the sarcomas, is they are vaccinated over a limb, but they're so high up on a limb, or they're actually the cat is in a crouched position, so it ends up being kind of more flank hip than really truly limb. It's really not helping us do a better job with our surgery. Um, so, you know, I, but I actually also should say I vaccinate my own cat in the tail. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and I think no, really. a lot of, a lot of, can- a lot of cancer surgeons do. And, and, you know, my cat is amazing. He's got a wonderful personality and I can do a lot with him. So, I mean, I'm not saying that's for everybody, but, you know, if anyone is going to do that, you've got to go pretty low on the tail, but not so low that there's not sub space. And I had to shave his tail and it didn't go back hmm. for a long time so i don't know a lot of clients may not accept that also but if, you know i think it's interesting to think about that um and again i think it's something that if you did it every day it's like you know it just might be about how we do it and and like whether it's a limb or a tail or wherever you're doing that procedure if that sort of just becomes how your clinic works and how you how you handle those patients i think it's possible
1: you know and and at least should be we should be talking about it but I'm so glad you made the connection between cat handling skills and a less stressful approach and the vaccination site, because those two things, I agree with you, absolutely go together. To play devil's advocate a little bit, I totally understand why some vets have difficulty vaccinating cats low on the limb. It isn't as easy as intrascapular. Uh, it isn't as easy with every cat. Um, the lower you go on the limb, the less substitute space there is. Uh, people are, you know, are fearful of where they're sticking sticking that needle. So from the, the vet point of view, just the technicalities of injecting in that site, yeah, they are a little bit more difficult. And certainly if your patient is less cooperative, it's also a challenge. So I do think we need to meet that challenge with that bigger uh, viewpoint that says we should be handling cats more compassionately, you know, using the, the cat currently practice techniques, the fear-free techniques. Lots of help out there now to guide us to have better interactions with cats. And, and maybe that's actually the bigger part of that conversation and what can flow, one of the good things that can flow out of that is better cat handling, better skills um, for vaccination. So, but I totally understand why my son vets have problems with that and why vaccines end up on the flank, you know, too high, um, because I, I would never be, um, one to say, oh, it's so easy to vaccinate low on the leg. Why isn't everybody doing it? Yeah, it is a little bit more technically challenging than it is um, in, uh, in the scruff of the neck. Uh, and I understand, too, why some of them have ended up on the body wall, you know, when the uh, vet probably wasn't <clears throat> aiming there. I do want to ask you about that, Sarah, because in Europe, um, a couple of the vaccine guidelines groups, uh, instead of recommending low on a leg, are actually recommending sub-Q on the lateral thorax or the lateral abdomen. So we have a, a somewhat different viewpoint and different recommendations in North America than they do in Europe. And and I think this is also confusing to veterinarians because there isn't consistency in recommendations. So what do you think about that more European viewpoint that, that says forget about the leg, use the body wall? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting.
2: And I think it comes from a bit of a cultural difference. So, you know, maybe amputation isn't as accepted um, some other places in the world. And so trying to, Come up with the same, uh, answers to the same question and, and try to solve the same problem. Um I think, I, I don't know there's any real research on that. And one concern I have about, you know, doing that is that the sub space in a cat is so, there's so much space there. I don't know that you could be confident that you, it landed exactly where you wanted. And I think that's one problem we're seeing with some of these, uh, vaccine site sarcomas is that even if the intention was to go over a hip, it's kind of moved around because there's just a lot of sub space. And so, you know, I guess I prefer the limb because I think you can direct it downwards. You can, you know, point your needle downwards and, and you know, go distal, but hopefully it's pushing further down and gravity is going to help you. So, I, you know, I, I don't, I'm not saying it's wrong. I think that's the concern I have with it. I think, you know, the thinking is we can get five centimeters, we can do a body wall resection. That's still a body wall resection. I mean, you're still going to have to reconstruct that with mesh or with, um, a sartorius muscle flap. Uh, we just published a paper on using a sartorius muscle flap for reconstruction of the body wall in dogs and cats. Um, so but you're still, it's still a pretty big surgery. Uh, but I guess either way, what,
3: <laughs> either way you could
2: argue that, you know, an amputation is not a small yeah. surgery. So, um, I, I think it's just a different approach to the same problem of trying to, you know, be able to cure these cats. And I think that's, that's great. I'd love to see, you know, if, if the European surgeons and the European veterinarians are going to start promoting that. I'd love to see, you know, in five or ten years how that goes for, you know, what it, what the mm. success rate is. Well,
0: one, one correction I would like to give there is that I think WSAPA gave the advice to do it not on the thoracic wall because then you have to do a thoracic wall resection which is quite a big, uh, big uh, surgery too but really use the abdominal wall uh, the mm. lateral ventral part of the abdominal wall because there the resection is probably much easier. Uh, but I agree with you, right. you know, the subject space is so, so, uh, loose there that you don't know where that vaccine is going. So, um, for you both, the question too is, so now everybody starts worrying about vaccination in cats. Should we vaccinate cats? Uh, how often should we vaccinate them? And, Then the other question is, of course, that if we vaccinate the cats, what do do we have to look for um, and when should we do something?
1: So that that is a really important part of the conversation because certainly back in the in the mid to late 90s, when we really became aware of the connection between injections and, of course, the most common injections cats, cats get or vaccines, and this type of tumor there wasn't there was some backlash and and it led to changing the, uh, the the duration the interval between vaccines and cats so now we much more commonly see extended duration extended duration licensed products and 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 uh, and protocols um so uh, but I think you, so having lived through all of this <laughs> i I think I'd point out a couple of key things and one is that we have to be really careful because it's not just vaccines. Sarah did mention, of course, there are you know multiple documented cases where it's not just vaccines. So I think there may be some cats who are just so prone to developing these tumors, and they may they may have a, a, a genetic susceptibility, for example, um, that that even uh, injections that cause minimal minimal inflammation, um, other other products, other drugs, for example, could trigger. Uh, a sarcoma at that site, and and when we talk about vaccines, as Sarah mentioned, adjuvanted types of vaccines do rely on some degree of inflammatory response. You know that, and that's that's not a bad thing. Uh, if you are a predisposed cat, that that and a, that of course could be a bad thing. But I also want to point out that we certainly have seen again these tumors form at sites where where non-adjuvanted vaccines have been used. So it's not like there is a, a really clear-cut, um, uh, you can prevent it by avoiding, you know, vaccine X or drug X. So, you know, there, there are some patients that are just going to be so susceptible. I would like to be able to tell who is that susceptible. I kind of like to flip it on its head and say, would it be cool if there was some, you know, readily available test that you could administer in kittenhood that would say to you, yeah, this patient you know, is, is uh, likely to, to develop a, a tumor at the injection site. So that's my pie in the sky. I'm thinking about it. So so, yeah. that, so that's one point. that we, we do see them from other other things, it's not just adjuvanted vaccines, although I, I agree that it's probably more likely to be an adjuvanted than a non-adjuvanted vaccine.
0: Just to give some numbers, they estimate that the incidence of these kind of tumors is 1 to 4 in every 10,000 vaccinated gas. That is data mm. from the U.S., and then there was another study from the UK, uh, where I saw 0.3, uh, or in 10,000 vaccinations. So obviously it's not, not that common in cats. And I think the important part is that we should not, not vaccinate our cats just because that this is happening.
2: In the UK, they don't vaccinate for rabies. So that would be why there's probably, there's less yeah. incidence in the UK. Yeah. Um exactly. you know if we have to vaccinate you know in North America we have to vaccinate cats for rabies I mean that's that's not negotiable I actually lived in the south for a while where people didn't weren't as good about vaccinating and pet animals were getting rabies so I mean we that has to happen I think you know we need to look at frequency we need to look at you know is are the non-anthrophoted better or not I I agree it's mm-hmm. not it's not the complete answer um and I, you know, I I do think that other things can cause, other injections that cause inflammation can cause it. But I guess where I feel like it's important or, you know, what I would like to educate veterinarians about is that the biggest impact we can make is on the vaccines. Like that's what we mm-hmm. have the most control over. We can control where we inject it, how often we inject it, what type we use. And so anything we can do to make it better, I think we will help make an impact on this disease. I don't think we'll make it zero, but I think, we need to talk about it because we need to figure out how to make it zero. And um, my worry is talking to some vaccine companies is that they say, oh, well, it could be anything and they won't do anything. And I said, well, yeah, it could be anything, but it really looks like these are these are vaccine sites. And so that's what we can do the most about. The really predisposed cat who's going to get it no matter what. We probably can't prevent it in that cat, but I think it's a spectrum. And I think we can help, you know, a lot of patients if we start talking about, what we should be vaccinating for. I mean, I have seen on cases that have been referred to me on the, when I get the whole record for the patient, like big bold letters saying, feline leukemia kills cats and you have to vaccinate every year. And I just, I don't think that's appropriate. You know, I think we need to stop doing that and, and uh, you know, think about what cat does need to be vaccinated for feline leukemia and what, you know, how often should we be vaccinating for rabies? Because those seem to be the big culprits, the adjuvanted rabies and leukemia vaccine. And then... The other thing which Yola brought up is what do we do when we see one of these? And I think yeah. the one, the one thing that happened when I was vaccinating in a really odd place, like, so it was the nineties, so I'm vaccinating low on a limb and it would start a conversation with a client because they would say, why, why are you doing that? Cause they've never seen a vet do that before. And I would explain like, well, there's a one in a, a thousand to one in 10,000 chance that your cat will develop a sarcoma at this site. And I want to make sure, you know, that it's low enough that we can do something about it. And that gives you an opportunity to educate the client what to do if they find a lump there so what could be kind of a conversation no one wants to have is something that you can sort of casually talk to them about so that you know they'll come back if there's a mass there um, and then something else that I think is really important because we always talk about aspirating any lump um, and that is always the right thing to do but it's actually not in this case uh, we need to we need to actually do a biopsy an aspirate will lead you astray with an injection site sarcoma and it'll just this bland kind of inflammatory lesion and you may not get an answer so you have to do an incisional biopsy not remove it but actually take a small piece of it don't disrupt the tumor and get an answer before we treat so i think those are part those are all part of the conversation that i want to be having is like you know we can control a little bit where these are happening and then we can control what we do about them
1: when we do diagnose them and vets do need to have good medical records right that they need to document the site of each vaccination so, you know, you're, you're, you're right. We're trained to aspirate, of course, masses, but if your medical record backs you up in, in confirming that that actually was a vaccine injection site or any injection site for that matter, then we're going to take a different approach to it. And, and just, just to be, be clear, you know, we've been talking about vaccinating in areas other than the intrascapular area. In my practice, we, we avoid giving any injection in the intrascapular area. So we've moved out of that area for, you know, Anything that we inject into cats, actually.
2: Just a really important point about the records, because I, I you know, I, I, always, I see these at the tail end. I don't see them at, the, you know, at the beginning or even the workup. I see them kind of at the, at the end when they have a tumor and they're coming for surgery. Um, and sometimes there's no good records because the cat has moved around or the people haven't had the cat very long. But sometimes there's just not good vaccine records, and you know, I think that's something else that we need to talk about and we need to, as a profession. Make sure that we're doing that. It's really critical. Um, some people don't report this as an adverse event. And I, like, what is more of an adverse event than this? I mean, this is cancer that control kill mm-hmm. this And so it's, <laughs> when you need to report this and you need to have the lot number and all the information for the vaccine company. They really don't want this to happen. This is very bad for them. So they actually are pretty committed to trying to figure this out. But if you can't provide them with what, even what vaccine it was, how can they help us and how can we work together? So, I mean, it's a medical record. It's not sexy, but you have to record it all. You know, the site and all the information that's on the, the label of the vaccine has to be recorded. And if something happens at that site, you need to go back to the vaccine company and report it to them. And then something else which some veterinarians don't know um, is some of these vaccine companies will actually assist the family paying for some of the, the treatment or at least yeah. the diagnostics, which is thousands of dollars. Um, and i've had vaccine companies help with that and so if if nothing else that's a reason to <laughs> make sure it's documented yeah. but there's actually there's actually other good reasons to do that so um that's something that i'm not seeing in the records that i'm getting i'm not seeing that happening
1: consistently so
0: we always talk about the 3 to 1 rule and i'm going to explain what this is and um, this is about you know when do you do something so Cats can get reactions to the vaccinations. Any animal can, but uh, sometimes. Uh, uh, so you need to know when when you should get nervous, and this is why they um, decided to call this a three-two-one rule. And uh, three is for three months. So if uh, the mass is still present after three months, you should get worried. Uh, two is if the mass becomes larger than two centimeters. And and one is it would increases the in size um, one month out of vaccination. So so that is... But you um, know what?
1: You know what, Yola?
0: Yeah.
1: I can never remember that. So let's ask Sarah. Sarah, can you remember
2: what the 321
1: was?
2: You know, I was in academia for a long time. And so the students would always come to me with that. And I'd always be like, yeah, what's that? Because I can't remember <laughs> it either. So, <laughs> so um, no disrespect whoever made up the three two one rule, but I actually I don't use it because I don't I don't remember it and I don't like I remember three two one and then I don't remember what the things are. So for me, mm. after a month if there's a growing mass, that's kind of what I would say. And you know, the the um the reactions to the vaccines this isn't even a good rule, but they feel different and they will slowly decrease in size whereas the sarcomas are more firm and they'll slowly increase in size. They're sometimes actually not that slowly. Sometimes they grow really quickly. So, yeah. um, you know, I think there's other rules that are better. Like, you have to do an incisional biopsy. Don't remove it. There, that's my rule. That's the Boston rule. <laughs> Don't <laughs> do yeah. an incisional and, biopsy. <laughs> yeah.
0: and, and, and that's why we love uh, Sarah. She's, she can be very, very direct in how, how she uh, sees these things. And I agree with you, Sarah. So, uh But still people have problems with recognizing it. So um, yeah. the three to one rule probably was this designed to help people mm-hmm. along and at least to be aware. So a lot of people just vaccinate their cats and then, you know, never look at them again. So I think but, the most important part yeah, here but- is to keep an eye on it. Uh, if it grows, that's not good. Um if it uh, is bigger than two centimeters, it's probably not good. And if it takes longer than three months, it's not good. So I, I can I can see it from both ways a little bit. But I agree with you that if you're a surgical oncologist and you're aware of the difference between inflammation pure sun and this fibrosarcoma which feels different, it, you know, you, you probably can feel the difference.
1: I, I just don't think a can like watch rule. It is a, right. a well-intentioned rule. Yeah, it's, like it's just, just, just hard remember to remember, rule. remember. It's just hard to remember, and I love
0: that when you <laughs> talk Sarah. both together. So, uh because then I know. <laughs> so, okay, I think Susan first.
1: Well, I, I just uh, so it is a good well-intentioned rule, but I, I, I like what Sarah said and uh, about the way that you buy OCB. So it bears repeating. So so maybe, Sarah, tell us again why this has to be an incisional biopsy, why we can't aspirate, and why we should not remove the lump. Because I will tell you that of those three options, my guess is the least commonly employed option is an incisional biopsy in this case. Right? Yeah, and I think that's, the correct, <laughs> that's the correct one.
2: Well, I think it's probably a, potentially a lack of awareness. Um, it's always it's a great impulse to aspirate. Always, except for in this case. So you just kind of have to remember this is all, this is the exception to the rule because it, it potentially will lead you astray. Um, so that's why aspirating is not always a great first step at a vaccine site um, because it's not going it's not going to necessarily give you an answer. It might actually give you a false sense of security that it's oh it's just inflammation everything's okay. Um, so that's why it, you know an aspirate is not a good plan. Um, and the reason why an excisional biopsy is not a good plan is. These tumors require a very large excision. So the current recommendation with surgery alone is five centimeter margins and two fascial planes deep. Um, if you do an excisional biopsy or remove it or take as much as you can, uh, which are, you know, all things that, that people do, and, and again, their intentions are good, um, you create a much bigger site for the definitive surgery and potentially actually allow some of those very aggressive tumor cells that are very good at invading, uh, you, you allow them to slip through fascial planes because you can kind of open things up for them. And so you can actually make things worse. Um, and again, you know, that's something else that we see because the referral to a surgeon is expensive. And so it puts pressure on the general practitioner to do the best you can or take as much as you can. And honestly, I would say don't do that. You actually could make it worse by doing that. Um And you shouldn't feel pressured to do that because, you know, you should be doing what what is most medically appropriate. And so the winner of those three options is to do an incisional biopsy. So just with a punch or a wedge biopsy, whatever you're more comfortable with, make sure you make a little incision in the skin and then make sure you're getting into the firm tissue that's underneath. And don't disrupt the outside. Don't go too deep and just take a piece of that tissue, get a diagnosis and find out what it is. And sometimes if you have a really nervous client, you might get back, vaccine reaction, you might get back inflammatory tissue, that would tell you to watch, continue to watch it. Um, that's great. You know, I've done that, actually. Uh, you know, it's usually a veterinarian who's worried. <laughs> I've biased people mm-hmm. and just got back. You know, it's just a vaccine site. Um, so, but but a lot of times you won't get that back. But if you can the diagnose these when they are small, you have a much better chance of treating. If you think about the two centimeter mass, which is usually the smallest we diagnose these, and then imagine five-centimeter margins around that two-centimeter mass, that's a 12-centimeter diameter on-block excision in a cat. It's huge. I mean, it's really huge. Um, so it's, it's, in certain locations, it's not possible. Um, and so that's why, that's, again, where the vaccine sites are critical, but
1: also diagnosing it small is critical because then it's going to be a smaller excision site. Yeah, we really want to remove the tumor from the cat, right, and not the cat from the tumor, which is sometimes, I think, what you're left with. Those very dramatic cases where they look like
2: they've got like a camel hump on their back, um, really, there's not a lot of options for those cats. We end up doing something much more palliative for those patients. Um, And I think something else that's important to consider in all of this is the cost, Um, because if we are looking at combining, you know, if we can't get it all with surgery, um, so the ideal case, from my perspective, is the below the stifle, below the elbow, that we can do a simple amputation. We don't need advanced imaging. Um, we don't need to follow with radiation. But in the larger cases that are in more awkward places, bigger surgeries, we will talk about combining radiation and surgery and either doing radiation first, following with surgery or vice versa. and there's there's grand debates about that whether you should which you should do first. Um, but either way you slice it, you are looking at tens like ten thousand dollars and going up from there because you know you need to do a CT scan. Radiation—it depends on the site, you know, where you have radiation, and I mean the center. But that's six to eight thousand dollars. The surgery can be upwards of six to seven thousand dollars. It's just a lot to ask of a client, um, and it, that's what actually breaks my heart—is just how the finances also that people can't afford that. And so sometimes you'll end up with a tumor you can't treat because it's too big. Sometimes you end up with a tumor that you can't treat because financially the owners are not able to do it. Um, and I guess that's why I feel so passionate about the subject because I'm the one, <laughs> I'm the one at that end of of, of giving this information to these families. Um, it'd just be so much better to give them that information at the time of vaccine so that we can all sort of stay on top of things. Uh, it's very hard to give that news to a client, um, either that it's no longer treatable or that just financially it's not something that they're going to be able to do. So. Trying to turn that around so that we get, <laughs> I had an ideal case, you know, it came in and, it, and it's, it's the only one I've seen like this, very low down on the stifle area, referring to a dental incisional biopsy, and we treated with a simple amputation. Still is a lot of money and still a lot for the cat to go through, but we essentially probably cured that cat and it was, it was a minimal expense from what I'm used to with those cases. Uh, So that's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that every case could be like that if we have to see these and that maybe they don't even get referred to me anymore.
0: Yeah, those are all all really good points, I think. Uh, And and just talking about treatment, uh, you said with the big ones, we always have to do surgery in combination with radiation. Uh, You haven't talked about chemotherapy yet. So there's a lot of discussion about if chemotherapy works for these cases.
2: Well, the metastatic rate is about 25%. and I'm not a medical oncologist, but in general, if we have a metastatic rate below 50%, we don't tend to recommend chemotherapy. Although some some medical oncologists will recommend it, or they'll recommend it if they see evidence of metastatic disease. But it's not usually the where we lose with this disease. Usually, is is it's locally aggressive, but it can
0: metastasize. And it, there's a problem with tumors too, too that they often have satellite lesions, huh? so it's not only the uh, location itself, and that's why I think it's so important to have good diagnostic imaging. Um, So you can look at the CT, and often you see these satellite tumors in the periphery of of the big tumor, and that's why we take 5 centimeters, because it used to be 3 centimeters and 1 fascia plane, like for any major tumor, but with cats, because they're so aggressive, uh, we have changed that to 5 centimeters and 2 fascia planes, so but that's, uh, those are really important points to to consider. Um, I like the fact that you talk about, that you really need to talk with clients about it. You shouldn't scare them away, but, you know, awareness is the first step for curing these cases. And we have all seen these tests come back with these major tumors, and clients that want to do everything that you kind of know that it's that's, that's not going to work uh, because these tumors are so aggressive.
2: Yeah, I actually had the experience last year. I think that's a little bit what got me onto this. It was probably just my experience with my clients and just feeling for them so much. But, um, being on a panel at the ACVS, you know, with a, a radiation oncologist who I, I really love working with her and I really respect her. But we were, we were having these big debates with each other about radiation first or surgery first. And I just, I, I sort of had this epiphany, like we shouldn't be doing either. <laughs> we shouldn't be having this debate. You know, because really, if we could place the injections lower, we wouldn't need to. We wouldn't need to have the debate. And um, it's just so much for these cats and these clients to go through. Um, yeah, that was really a moment for me. I thought, wow, we're ha-, you know, and, and it's only specialists that we're talking to. We're not talking to general practitioners because we were at a surgery meeting. You know, talking to surgeons who do cancer surgery, talking about radiation. And I just think there really needs to be more communication between the general practitioners and the surgeons about what's happening with these cats and how we should be treating them. Um, Cause at the moment I don't feel like we're all communicating with each other about it. And it is rare. So if you're in general practice, you're not going to see a lot of these. And so I think if you don't see a lot of these, it's hard to, it's hard to change what you do every single day. And I understand that. But um, if you take it down to the individual cat, which, you know, we're not in herd medicine we're we, we treat individual patients if, if that family is experiencing that, it is it is horrible for
1: them. So I think that's what we have to keep in our minds, even though so many of these cats are not going to be affected. You know, I often find that if a practitioner has had um, one uh, patient develop this tumor, that, that can change their outlook. That can make them um, see that it is worth making a daily change for something that might happen quite infrequently in their practice. But it helps you sleep at night. You know, as you said, we can't reduce this to zero, but if we can do things that are the best we can, if we know that we're doing the best we can, um, then at least for me, it helps me be able to sleep at night, know that I did the best I could for my patient. And so, so I think that's one issue. Veterinarians don't like change, and so we have touched a couple of times on communicating with cat owners, and I think it's another difficult situation because I know that many veterinarians, and I I would include myself in this, feel that we need to be a little bit careful. So I'm I'm mindful of those um, ads on TV. So So it'll be an ad for a drug on TV. And they're usually out of the U.S. because I think in Canada we're not allowed to do this type of advertising. But you probably all know what I mean, right? It could be any drug. And the list of potential adverse events that they are required to recite is so long that I can 't be the only one who has watched those commercials and said, "Why would anybody take that drug?" And, and so there, there has to be a, a, a balance. there's a way, there's an art, I guess, in, in the, the skill of the communication to the client, that you don't overwhelm them with, with the fact, because we know it's one to four out of every 10,000 vaccinated cats, but the client could leave your office thinking, "It's going to be my cat." Right. And not only would that prevent them from being vaccinated in the future, but it might prevent them from ever coming back to the veterinary clinic. You know, so there there is some skill, there is some balance there in in how to handle that I think.
0: I like the fact that when there are these commercials that they speed up the person's talking really, really fast (laughs) So pivotal in the two minutes that they have. It's just it's great. Yeah, yeah, you're completely right there. So 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 what would you recommend then for a cat that had one of these we re- have to have reactions uh, uh, some people say okay when 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 a cat either had a sarcoma or had one of these granulomas, we should not vaccinate these cats anymore, maybe make it an indoor cat, uh, although uh, like Sarah said, if you need to vaccinate for rabies there's you know not a lot of choice there so
1: and and I'll let Sarah answer the part about if you. If you've had a cat that was unfortunate enough to get a sarcoma, but lucky enough to recover from it. But, um, and, and then we'll talk a little bit about what about the cat who just gets, uh, uh, an inflammatory reaction, but doesn't develop a tumor at that site. So I, I bet I can guess what Sarah's going to say about the sarcoma survivor. What would you say, Sarah?
2: Yeah. I, I, I generally say don't vaccinate those cats anymore. Mm. Um, and, yeah. uh, you know, I, I think I don't know how much weight they put into titers, but I think that's something you can do to see, just try to assess if they are still uh, protected against rabies. I mean, a lot of these cats are honestly losing a leg. So, I mean, maybe those cats can still be outdoor cats, but they're probably going to have a somewhat of a change in their lifestyle anyway, uh, if you think about yeah. it. Like, if they, if they get through this and they are survivors, they're going to have somewhat of a change in their lifestyle. So, I, I wouldn't vaccinate my own cat if, if my cat developed that and survived that. So,
1: I don't think I can recommend that to clients. We could use intranasal vaccines, you know, where they're available. So that's one option. That cat could have a, an intranasal vaccine for herpes, calicivirus, pen, for example. Um, but it does take the question about the vaccines that are only available as injectables. And, and so, I mean, I would agree with you. That's the route that we go in our practice, that these cats don't get vaccinated again. I think the trickier ones are the cats that have just had an inflammatory reaction at the site. So, that doesn't mean that, they're, that they would develop a sarcoma in the future. We actually don't know what that connection is, right? So there there may be far more cats that simply get your garden variety inflammatory reactions at an injection site, and they'll never get a sarcoma. Um, but is it a warning shot for some cats? Is that is that a, no pun intended, right? But is that a warning sign? Um, I feel that it's unclear, so I'd, I'd like to... I guess for both of you, Yola and Sarah, I'd like to know what your take is on those cats.
2: Yeah, I I mean, I think those are cats I would watch. I would probably yeah. maybe look at minimal vaccination, but still do their necessary vaccines. But I would go really low and just watch them. Because um, I don't yeah. know that necessarily developing a granuloma means that you're going to get a sarcoma. Um, you could yeah. almost argue it the other way. Because <laughs> they do. Yeah, exactly. So, I, you know, I don't I don't I don't I agree with you. It's not clear.
0: I would definitely watch them. I would give as less vaccines as I can. So really look at the ones that you only have to give every three years instead of every one year. Um, And and, and maybe look at alternatives like intranasal vaccines instead of injecting them. Writing down very clearly where you put the vaccines. Don't vaccinate in the same area with multiple vaccines because it has also been shown that that would create, create more inflammation. Um, and in some cases, if it's an indoor cat and you don't have to vaccinate, so you're in an area where there is no rabies, then I would not vaccinate them at all. I, I won't take the risk.
1: And we could look at changing if, you know, for example, you you routinely use adjuvanted vaccines in a practice that might be a patient you could switch to a non-adjuvanted vaccine. So I think there's options, you know, in in the absence of having evidence. Well, you know how firm a link there is between those cats that get inflammatory reactions versus the ones that get sarcomas, till we know more about that, I think there's still steps you can take.
0: Yeah, exactly. And a uh, couple of other points that uh, uh, this this group brought up, uh, the ABCD group, that uh, quite a lot of experts was, were in, was to uh, warm the vaccines up before you inject them, and to wherever possible, inject subcutaneous instead of intramuscular. So there's quite a lot of a lot of tips that they had, and and if people want more information, this article was uh, published in the Journal of Teeline uh, Medicine and Surgery, a journal that I adore, I love it. In 2015, with a special article. Yay. Uh, so that's <laughs> uh, yeah, I knew they could do that, and there uh, there's quite a lot of information about this topic too. So Sarah, one more yes. question for you: uh, cats with amputation, what do you think?
2: I think, in general, they do great with an amputation. Um, They tend to do better with a hind limb versus a forelimb amputation. Um, But, in general, they can do extremely well. Um, Ideally, they're in good body condition, so the obese cats are going to struggle. We want to keep cats in good body condition anyway. But, um, in general, a cat who's in good body condition... Um, is going to do fine uh with an amputation. I still think it's unfortunate. We have to amputate a patient mm. for any any reason. You know, that's a change in their lifestyle. So um, I think I've, I've toned down my rhetoric a little bit, I have to admit. Like, I guess especially with the dogs that I do, I think, oh, they're fine. They're just normal. I don't think they're – they're not exactly the way they were before they had cancer, but I still think they can have an excellent quality of life and be very
0: functional on three legs. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's
1: some big picture things, right, to, to – that we we can draw from our our, our conversation today.
0: It's really cool, Claire, that you said that because we were at uh, at a conference last week uh, where one of the speakers, and we all know him, Nick Bacon, uh, Dr. Nick Bacon, said uh, about uh, osteosarcoma in, in in dogs that he was uh, veering away from amputation. So he preferred now to to treat these animals as long as he can could. With keeping the leg on, because we all know that these dogs probably are not going to die from, uh, the local tumor, but mainly from the metastasis. And I thought that was, that was, that, that was an interesting take on things, because it's kind of a waveform that we do. We, you know, we went from, you know, we're amputating them all. Uh, first we couldn't amputate them because it was an as-call, then we amputated all, everything. And now we're going away again and, and start talking about the ethical dilemma of amputation. I think it is, it is definitely something you have to discuss with the owner and take time for to discuss. I normally think that cats do excellent. I had a cat that had two amputations, uh, two, uh, sure. one front leg and a hind leg and it ran like crazy. Um I had a cat with a front leg amputation that climbed in the, in the curtains without any problems. So they're so personal. As a matter of fact, I, I think cats do much better with amputation than dogs in general. So I would amputate in any case, but yeah, so. Is this, oh, is this I, a
1: surgeon thing that if, if you're a surgeon, you end up with cats with amputations? I'm sensing a trend here, Yola.
0: <laughs> Maybe it is. That could be possible. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> my
2: cat, my cat has all his legs and he gets back oh. on the tail.
0: So
3: <laughs> there you go.
2: <laughs> so if he gets, a, if he gets
1: on a sarcoma, he's going to have his tail amputated, but. Well, you know, I think there's some really good, um, you know, good messages that came out of this discussion. So I think Sarah's right. Um, This topic has kind of died away in recent years and it shouldn't have because clearly there's a lot more work that we can do. So we do need to keep working with general practitioners to help them change their vaccine habits, you know, to change their sites, um, uh, in particular, um, and and then we also have to educate general practitioners around what to do when there is a lump at an injection site. Because as Sarah has pointed out, you have, you, you don't follow the rules that we're taught to follow whenever there, whenever we find a mess. This is different. And, and so I think it's so critical that general practitioners, A, recognize that this could be an injection site, um, sarcoma and not only recognize it, but then know what to do because you know, as Sarah's described, what you do next will really dictate the outcome for that cat, right? It could it could go even worse than it might otherwise if the if the practitioner takes the wrong steps. Yeah. And I would say, adding to that, like I, I think general practitioners always feel like they have to
2: do something, and mm. we're here to help. We're specialists. This is mm. what this is what I this is all I do. You know, and if someone says, "I've never seen one of these," I have no idea what to do with it. I'm going to send it to Sarah. Awesome. But you know, I mm-hmm. think there's just too much, there's so much pressure to know everything and do everything. And I was in general practice for three years and I think it's the hardest job in veterinary medicine. So don't worry about it. Like call your specialist or just send the case, you know, say, you know what? I think this is what this is. I, you know, I know it's tricky. I'm going to send you to a specialist. And, and most owners are so happy with that, you know, and, and then once we get it figured out what it is, we work together, you know, we work together on that mm. patient. And I, I, that's a whole other topic for another day, but we need to yeah. do a better job as specialists and general practitioners working together on our cases to get the best possible outcome.
0: Absolutely. And I think uh, you already said it. we want you back uh, to talk about this because, you know, we, we could talk for hours here. This is fantastic. So mm. yeah, if, if people want to reach you, I mean, you write an awesome blog. I, I love your blogs. Where should they go to find out a little bit more?
2: So I am on Twitter at Dr. Sarah Boston and Instagram Dr. Sarah Boston. So that <laughs> I'm not easy. <laughs> yeah.
0: And and where do you find your blog?
2: Um, doctor <laughs> doctor Boston dot com. I okay. am working on my branding, but but that it'll always stay Dr. Sarah Boston. So yeah, that's the way to that's the best way to find me.
0: That's fantastic, so I would like to thank you for both of us. I know that uh, Susan is, will yes. probably agree with me. This has been fantastic you' you're, you're such an inspiration uh, and, and and I so appreciate so much that you're our first victim ever in the per podcast and uh, so thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you for so
1: topic. A great topic, Sarah, and we, we clearly need to keep spreading the, the, the word. We still, we need to reinvigorate this conversation about injection sites, sarcomas, and cats.
0: Thank you so much. I,
1: ho- I hope so. Thank you, guys.
0: And I wish you all uh, happy travels because I know that we're all traveling tomorrow. What is the coincidence there? <laughs> that is just, just amazing. <laughs> so thank you so much, everybody, and, uh, and we'll Uh, talk to our audience again in about two weeks. So, thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Susan. Talk to you later. Bye. Thanks, guys.
3: Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat-only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks, The Cat Clinical Medicine and Management, and August consultations in feline internal medicine. Along with three cats, she also admits to owning two dogs. You can follow her on social media with the handle at CatVetSusan. Dr. Yola Kerpenstein is a diplomat of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally Invasive Surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently for Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at GVETSX.